George Floyd could have been me. Um, Amand Aubrey could have been me. Breonna Taylor could have been me. Uh, there are so many thousands of people who have been killed by a system designed to kill black and brown people could have been me. You may remember that voice if you were listening to this podcast on Friday. Johnson is his name, his last name. He was one of the protesters who sent us a voice memo about why this uprising happening in the United States right now is important to him. And today, I wanted to play for you something else, he said. It's something I've been thinking about while I've been out in the streets, seeing, hearing the calls for police violence and racism to end, and people just trying to be heard. George Floyd never got that chance. And we have to speak for him. We have to speak for all the other victims who have been, and I hate to use this word, but lynched by the police. Uh, This has gone on far too long, and it has to stop. George Floyd, a name you're likely familiar with now, died after Officer Derek Chauvin held him down with his knee on Floyd's neck for almost nine minutes. Three other officers stood by. Protests began in Minneapolis the next day and spread to every American state and some cities outside the U.S. It's clear. Protesters are fed up with police violence. The question that remains is how to put an end to it. There is one possible solution. The Minneapolis City Council this week announced their intent to defund the police. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. And I want to go back to Johnson. I'll let him introduce himself with his full name here. My name is A. Raphael Johnson. I am a novelist and consultant in the Powderhorn neighborhood of Minneapolis. To find out how he, a Black man in Minneapolis, the city where George Floyd was killed, feels about the police. When we first got a hold of him, things were hectic. For the past week, I have been protesting. I've been taking care of my family, and I've been working with our neighbors to defend our homes and keep each other safe. It wasn't just Floyd's death, and it wasn't just the protests. In Minneapolis, there were these arson attacks. At first, just a dozen, then dozens of buildings burned down, and it wasn't clear who was doing it. Federal arson investigators are looking into it now. We have seen that almost every local grocery store has been burned, local financial institutions have been burned. We're out there with hoses and buckets. The Minneapolis Police Department came to our block. They could have told us to leave and fought the fire themselves. They could have called in the fire to the fire department. What they chose to do was fire at us with rubber bullets with no notice. And at the time, Johnson, who was overwhelmed protecting his home and his family, would have really liked a call for help. So we asked him if he would call the police if he was facing a threat. 
Uh, that is a good question. I guess it would depend on what it was. There have been reports of white nationalists cruising around. Would I call on one of them? Probably. That being said, I don't want the police to come here and shoot me. I would say if it's an absolute life or death situation that is beyond my means to manage, that's when I will think about calling the police. He's thinking for a while. And then Johnson starts to remember. There was a time when he wasn't worried about the police. It was on a visit to New Zealand. I didn't flinch. I didn't look over my shoulder. I didn't try to get their names and badge numbers and kind of, you know, register them in case something bad happened. They didn't just walk around with a gun on their hip. And that made a huge difference. And so I think one thing, and this is going to drive most American officers nuts, is that they need to be disarmed. So Johnson knows he can feel comfortable around the police. But disarming officers isn't a policy that's even discussed here in the United States. I think we've seen small examples of places where police forces have actually reformed and been changed, but they're very, I think, pretty rare. Johnson puts the blame, at least partially, on the history of police in the U.S. The historical roots of police departments in America are bound up with uh, slavery, bound up with slave patrols. And now there's a growing movement that says this can't be rectified with reform, as has been done in the past. What we are demanding is that we abolish our law enforcement. Because I don't think that we can reform and rebuild. Because after all of these years, there has been no reform. Could abolishing the police be the answer? I think at one time, the abolition of slavery seemed like an impossible idea, like a crazy idea. But that happened. I think at one time, women voting seemed like an insane idea in the United States, and here we are. It's an idea that we have to consider really deeply, and we have to ask ourselves not just how do we abolish the police force, but what do we want in its place? So that's what we're going to do. And we'll get back to Johnson. But first, we want to explore the track record of trying to reform police in the U.S. Cammie Chavis is a professor at Wake Forest University's School of Law. I have been writing and, and working on issues of police accountability for the last 15 years. And we wanted to know where she thinks the problem with the police started. She echoes what Johnson said about slave patrols. And then as you move forward in history and you think about white supremacist groups like the Ku Klux Klan and the lynchings after Reconstruction, law enforcement was often complicit. And then we move to the civil rights movement where their job was to enforce the law of the land at that time. The law of the land in the South was segregation. And that might be removing someone who, by law, was not supposed to be in a certain place. Professor Chavis says there's a culture that's been created. 
And she knows that culture because she used to be part of the law enforcement system here in the U.S. I spent uh, a, a large part of my legal career prosecuting young black and brown men for petty drug crimes uh, and the like. So I describe myself sometimes as a reformed prosecutor. So I asked her from her experience what she thought the root of the problem was with the police in Minneapolis. It is about the culture of policing and then about the culture of policing within the police department. An individual officer that does a bad thing or falls below the standard immediately ought to be judged by others and the professional norms. The fact that these other officers stood by not intervening, that says something about their character for sure, but it also tells you a lot about their the culture and the expectations within the police department, that no one would say anything to them, that no one would discipline them, that they didn't feel comfortable uh, intervening. And in recent U.S. history, there have been some pretty significant and costly efforts to reform this culture. So what's gone wrong? Simone Weitzelbaum covers police reform for the Marshall Project. The Marshall Project is this part think tank, part journalism outlet covering justice, just justice in the United States. And she picks up this history with the civil rights movement, where Professor Chavis left off. So Martin Luther King was assassinated. Cities started burning in states across the country. The Johnson administration commissioned several reports to figure out what's going on, what went wrong. Out of those reports came a push to professionalize policing. One, make leadership more educated. Two, make rank and file more diverse to reflect the cities in which they patrol. And three, create an arm of the Justice Department that works with academics to start getting um, data science and academic theory into police policy. You did see um, the birth of Black police leaders. You see the birth of women being in leadership in that generation. We're talking about 70s and 80s. On the face of it, these reforms seem to be going well. Then you had Los Angeles burn in the early 90s because of the Rodney King beating. I'm here outside Parker Center where protesters have descended on the place. The death of Rodney King, his name, his beating at the hands of police, and the riots that followed. And the subsequent uprisings are a result of the brutal beating America witnessed. But more than that, it's how these images resonated with what Black and brown people had been experiencing in their own interactions with police. Out of that came a Clinton-era statute that allows the Justice Department to sue police departments and force them to reform. They are babysat through things called federal monitors, which are these teams of ex-police chiefs, academics, but they're basically babysitters who force them, who evaluate them every few months. This federal monitoring is called a consent decree. After the Rodney King beating, the Los Angeles Police Department was under consent decree for years. And if you're wondering if this costs money, so are we. Consent decrees cost millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. So um, is that really the answer? Question mark. And it hasn't worked. Money keeps being thrown at the system, but the problems haven't been solved. On August 9th, 
2014, just six years ago, a teenager, 18-year-old Michael Brown, was shot and killed by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. There is growing outrage tonight after an unarmed African-American teenager was shot and killed by police in the St. Louis suburb of Ferguson, Missouri. On the streets of Ferguson, Missouri, outrage and anger. Again, protests broke out. And Barack Obama was president at the time. Eric Holder was the attorney general at the Department of Justice. And they launched an investigation into the Ferguson Police Department. What they found was bad. But again, for a lot of people, not surprising. It not only revealed the police's bias against African Americans, it also showed the Ferguson Police Department was generating revenue through trumped-up and often violent arrests of Black people. A community where local authorities consistently approached law enforcement not as a means for protecting public safety, but as a way to generate revenue. This is Eric Holder then. A community where both policing and municipal court practices were found to be disproportionately harmful to African-American residents. So the Obama administration put out uh, a 21st Century Task Force. That's what it was called, the 21st Century Task Force. Police chiefs, community members, consultants, They all set out, once again, to solve this problem. Not just in Ferguson, but across the United States. It wasn't just Michael Brown. Freddie Gray died after a very lethal ride in a police van in Baltimore. Eric Garner was suffocated by police in New York. A lot of the issues that have been raised here, and in places like Baltimore and Ferguson and New York, goes beyond policing. Obama's 21st Century Task Force was supposed to bring together the police and the communities. So you heard this thing in policing, be a guardian and not a warrior. And there's this whole idea that cops need to um, be kinder, more polite. Police officers were also armed with body cameras. But the big push was to get police to engage with communities better. Some are still following that. Many are not. And there is a reason many departments aren't following that. Trump won. I love you guys. Whether you're cops, police officers, law enforcement, I'll call you whatever you want. It doesn't matter. You are so great, so respected. You don't even know how much our public loves you. You don't know it. You don't know it. There are police chiefs who are um, progressive and really care about this and are still following it. I think the issue is it um, wasn't a part of the zeitgeist anymore. And unless you were a police chief, like the police chief in Minneapolis, who said, yeah, I still want to follow this. Sure, let's try it. That didn't work out for her too well. White's Obam told the story of the former Minneapolis police chief, Janae Harto. She volunteered her department to be a part of Obama's reforms. She was the department's first female chief, the department's first gay chief, and she rose up the ranks. Then, a Black Somali-American police officer shot and killed a blonde Australian yoga teacher. It was one shot. And jury deliberations continue this morning in the trial of a former Minneapolis police officer who shot and killed an unarmed yoga teacher. Mohammed Noor faces several charges in the death of Justine Damon. 
The yoga teacher, Justine Damon, was allegedly approaching the officer's car after calling 911. The officer, Mohammed Noor, was convicted of third-degree murder and sentenced to 12 and a half years in prison. There have been 11 police-involved killings in Minneapolis in the past 10 years. Noor was the only Minneapolis police officer convicted of killing anyone. The only one. Minneapolis Police Chief Janae Harto was pushed to resign. That was 2017. So a lot of reasons why we are where we are today. So why don't these other police officers get punished? First of all, the cop has to be charged. Usually there is a police union that tries and is often successful at protecting their own. Then there are the prosecutors, whose job is to bring charges. The prosecutors normally work with the police, compiling evidence in criminal cases. They work as a team. So prosecutors are often reluctant to bring charges against police when it's the police who do something wrong. We should say, former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was charged with second-degree murder for killing George Floyd. And the other officers in the video were also charged with aiding and abetting murder and manslaughter. That was nearly a week after the protests had begun. And it's rare. So in these rare cases where officers are charged, Weitzelbaum says, Juries rarely convict a cop. She says prosecutors and lawyers in charge of selecting members for a jury typically steer clear of people with strong opinions. Especially if you're a knowledgeable human or you work in criminal justice, or in this case, if you're a protester, you have to divulge your link and interest to a case. You can't, they don't just pick you and put you on a case. Now, who is that going to be? It's not going to be a person of color. It's not going to be a progressive white person, right? It's going to be older white conservatives. So there's that. And then there's the leadership of these departments. The chiefs, the commissioners, they have a lot of influence too. And they bring that influence from city to city. They typically move around quite a bit. You just bounce from city to city. So out of this group came broken windows policing, which then birthed stop and frisk. It's likely a lot of Americans wouldn't refer to these aggressive, dangerous, and often very racially biased policies as reform. So what direction is police reform going to go? I don't know yet, but it's going to move somewhere. A lot of the protesters want to see it move in a different direction, away from these old methods of reform. Now, more and more, people are talking about police abolition. That's Muhammad Sheikh with an organization called Critical Resistance. They're hopeful that this is the dawn of a new era in the conversation about police reform. The term abolition is a term that we use to describe both a long-term vision for a world without policing, imprisonment, you know, state violence and control. And it's also a everyday practice and organizing strategy. There's a whole history behind this movement to abolish police. And Critical Resistance has been working on this strategy for more than 20 years. And as you can imagine, back then, it was not a very popular concept. <laughs> um, when people said, we need to abolish the police, 
they would get looks like you're crazy. So I've been out at these protests, these the ones in Washington, D.C., over this past week, and I've seen support for this idea. Definitely. It's also on social media, especially when there are so many images being shared of police brutality. I would definitely say that the idea of police abolition is getting traction. Just this week, the Minneapolis City Council vowed to disband the police. But so far, the mayor is not on board. It's because people are looking for something different. The conversation was really dominated by cosmetic reform, body cameras for police officers, better training for police officers, right? And nothing has really changed. Are you seeing more city halls changing their perspectives? U.S. representatives, other politicians get on board with this? Yeah, absolutely. Talks in San Francisco, in Portland, Baltimore, even in New York City. The work of our Portland chapter, the superintendent announced that they were going to be terminating the contract to have armed police officers in schools, which I think speaks volumes to the moment that we're in. The abolitionist movement is still up against a lot, including voters who, according to polling, have been supportive of law enforcement. Defunding the police would be a major achievement by the abolitionist movement. Actually, abolishing the police still seems pretty far away. We understand the way that the prison industrial complex was built, the way policing and imprisonment were built, happened over years, not overnight. The way that we're going to undo that is to chip away at those systems dollar by dollar and dismantling jail by jail, police department by police department. Every dollar that we're able to take away from the systems of state violence and put back into our communities, that's a win for abolition. But I had this question. What about crime? If we talk about something that's criminal, then the automatic response is to say, well, send in the police. Why does crime exist? Social inequality, racism. How do we address crime and how do we address harm is by addressing the root causes. But how does that work in real life? We got back in touch with Johnson, the Black novelist and father in Minneapolis. One thing that was very clear to uh, all of us during the disturbance was that the police weren't coming. While I don't think the police intended to teach us this lesson, what we found out is that we can actually do a lot of these things. We don't need to call 911 every time something slightly odd is happening, even if something really odd is happening. You know, I was taught from the time I was a child that the police would not assume innocence uh, because of the color of my skin. Right now, we're very worried, especially for our son. We don't have a lot of gang activity. No one is pressuring our son to sell drugs or, you know, any of those other narratives you see in the media. The organization that is most likely to hurt him where we live is probably the police. And he doesn't see the police themselves changing. And we need to just confront that head on. Although it sounds like a radical step, I actually think disbanding the police force is a good idea to allow for some real reform to happen. 
He says it's still not an easy decision to make. We do want someone to call when we spot white supremacists throwing firebombs in our neighborhood and trying to figure out who that would be, I think is going to take some work. Johnson and his family and his city and this country may be left doing that work, whether Americans want to or not. And that's The Take. Friday, we get back to the pandemic with anthropologist David Graeber, who tells us about work during coronavirus, what's essential and what's not. Today's episode was produced by Amy Walters, with help from Priyanka Tilvey, Ney Alvarez, Dina Kispe, Alexandra Locke, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Our executive producer is Stacey Samuel. Our head of audio is Graylin Brashear. If you like this episode, give us a review, tell your friends, and subscribe. We'll be back. <laughs> 